Well, only Jesus can make our story a redemption story. And, but once Jesus has made our story a redemption story, nobody can unwrite that song. He is so good to us. Well, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture. Uh, and we're going to read from Jeremiah chapter 17 and Matthew chapter 6 uh, this morning. Uh, one more time here in these passages of Scripture that I have needed for my life in these days. So Jeremiah chapter 17 beginning in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. Shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. That's not a redemption story, is it? This is, verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, it's the Lord Jesus speaking. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Let's pray together. is not anxious in the year of drought. It's what Jeremiah promised. It's what you promised through Jeremiah, Lord, and for those who trust in you. And then Jesus tells us not to be anxious about our lives. So help us, we pray, to uh, not just hear these things, but understand how we could live lives of joy and peace in Jesus whose name we pray, amen. Well, of course, you may be seated, and this morning's message is really going to be an exhortation and encouragement uh, in the Lord about overcoming anxiety through the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, all, there are a thousand reasons to be anxious, aren't there? Maybe, maybe that's a low estimate. Thousands of reasons to be anxious and one reason not to be. You know what the one reason not to be anxious is? Jesus said not to be. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. I just want to point out that Jesus is saying that knowing he's going to go to the cross. He knows what the future holds. And and not only does he know the future of himself, he's speaking to his disciples. Do you know about their lives? This isn't a bit of friendly optimism. Jesus is saying, hey, just relax. Don't be anxious about your life. He, he knows his disciples are going to face the most stressful circumstances a human being can face. So, so this means that our hope is not in a drought-free, stress-free, smooth life, right? Jesus is not saying don't be anxious because times aren't going to be tough. He knows the opposite is actually true. Friends, I I wish I could just kind of stand here and say, things are going to get better. Circumstances are going to smooth out. But but I've, I've read the scripture. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. And for generations now, we have sown self-autonomy, self-sufficiency, and telling God we don't really need Him. And we will reap that. 
We are reaping that, and it will continue. So the message is not, you don't have to be anxious, there's no drought coming. Jeremiah says, if you trust in the Lord, you won't be anxious in the year of drought. So um, I'm going to use an illustration throughout this morning's message. I've got seven, I pray, uh, scripture-based exhortations for you about uh, handling anxiety. uh, This happens about three or four times a year. We print out the sermon outline, and it's all tucked away nice and uh, secure. And then as I continue to study, I just change the message. So if you've got one of those message handouts and it's printed, just flip it to the blank side, all right, because that's what you'll actually uh, be using. I can't even remember, honestly, what the original title, like maybe God's help in anxiety. So I just retitled it, Overcoming Anxiety Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's only through Christ that you overcome anxiety. Jesus is not anxious. Praise God for that, right? He's not anxious. He's not nervous. He's full of joy and full of life. That's why he can give the same to you. My peace I give to you, he said. So, um... The illustration that I want to use is uh, not yesterday, but a week from yesterday. My son Abel and I, uh, we ran a 5K obstacle course. It was held here in town. It's called Tackle the Tar. A few of you were there. And what Tackle the Tar is, is a 5K obstacle race. And I'm always looking for fun things to do with my son. And, and uh, we saw that, and I said, would well, you want to run that? And he said, yeah. And so we were going to do it together, which... It's kind of funny. We didn't really do it together. He did it, and then I trailed, you know, a thousand yards behind. But, but I want to use that because as I was running, because it's kind of a mud race, you don't have your headphones, and all I had left to do was to pray. And I've found, man, I will pray if I run. And it usually begins like this, God, please help me. But that's good. And there is something about running a race and, the, and Paul talks about the Christian life this way. I want to run in such a way that I win. And he'll say at the end of his life, I've finished the race. And, and so I do think that uh, running a race can be compared to the, the Christian life. And so I want to use that as an illustration uh, about overcoming anxiety. And start with this first exhortation. is We have to have the right starting line in life. So just, just to remind you, in, in Matthew 6.25, we'll read it together, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And when we teach the Bible, I often encourage you to always pay attention if there's a repeated word or phrase. And there is in that verse. And the phrase is, more than. We can overcome anxiety when we realize, by God's grace, that life is often more than we've made it out to be. There's more to this life than what we often think. And, and then often also call your attention to verse 25, says, therefore. In, in other words, it's a transition. Where Jesus is saying, because of all that I've been saying to you, therefore, do not be anxious. So I want to come back up here to verse number one, where Jesus um, sort of exposes the default starting line to your life. 
and then corrects and says, you need to pay attention to this because if not, you're on the wrong course. Right? When we ran the Tackle the Tar, they informed us, you need to show up at Rocky Mount Stadium. And when we got there, I didn't really have to ask, where's the starting line? You know why? They had this huge banner. And you know what it said? Start. And then not far away was another banner that said, finish. And I appreciate that. I like clear direction. In verse 1, chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And Jesus is a master teacher, and he so succinctly summarizes how you waste your life. The default setting in a sinful heart is, I live for the approval, for the attention, for the acceptance of other people. Nobody has to teach you to do that. You you just were born that way, to to need that from other people. And what happens is you start to live your whole life on the basis of other people seeing you, uh, uh, seeing your life, examining your life, evaluating your life. And one reason we, we tend to be anxious is we keep trying to squeeze life out of a source that does not have life to offer us, namely the approval of other people. But the challenge for us is we never get joy there, but we can't help but look for joy there. That's how we're born. The Bible refers to this as the fear of man, controlled by what other people think about us. So, show you a picture of the starting line. I tackle the tar. That's what it looks like. You know it's the starting line because everybody's bunched up there together, you know. Then 20 yards, people start spreading, spreading out. It's, it's, this picture taken just right after the race starts. So, if your starting line in life is the fear of other people, the fear of man, anxiety is inevitable because you're controlled by something that... Uh, never satisfies, never uh, uh, ends. And have you noticed how we act differently when we know somebody's watching us? Ever ever had a moment where you thought you were alone and then realized you weren't like, um, I know that some of you dance at home when nobody's watching. I know you do because I do. And I wouldn't dare, I wouldn't, I wouldn't stand up here this morning and dance. You know why? I'd like to maintain my dignity, that's why. Some things once seen can never be unseen, right? We even have that phrase, don't we? Dance like nobody's watching. And we all intuitively know what that means. You know why I won't dance? Because I care too much about what you think. Children don't start out that way, right? Man, two and three and four years old, they'll just dance and dance. But then we learn and it's not about dancing, of course, that Jesus is talking about here in verse 1, but practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then he'll talk to, talk, begin to talk about examples of that. When you give, you don't need to sound a, a, a bell, so to speak, when you're giving so that everybody sees that you give. Or when you pray, you only pray in public. As we've often said, who you are when no one is around is who you really are. So he's warning this about, he's warning us about there is something when it comes to uh, religion that we can practice things that aren't actually true of us. The Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the real starting line. 
When we say we don't want to live for the approval of other people, we want to understand that biblically. It doesn't mean that you just say, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about in Christ, you've been approved. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been restored. My identity is that I belong to him. So, so it's not that I go through life saying, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. It's that I've been liberated to serve Jesus and not serve other people so that I can love people, not use people. God doesn't reward people pleasers. He rewards God's, God pleasers. He says, uh, verse 6, if you do practice your righteousness in order to be seen by them, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What's the reward? It's knowing him. Knowing him for who he really is. The reward is not an easy and comfortable life with a predictable schedule, children that are healthy, and traffic lights that stay green for you in order for you to get through them. No, the reward is him. So, talk about um, big picture, your starting line, but let's just talk about your day, today. When you got up today, what was the starting line for your day? To please him or to just get through the day? I mean, honestly, when the alarm goes off and you have to get up, is, it, is the day something to be survived, endured, tolerated, or this is the day the Lord has made? I will rejoice and be glad in it. So what's the starting line for your life? The approval of others? Or the approval you have in Christ before the Lord. Second exhortation is uh, we, we keep to the course of following Jesus, not the world. There is a course to the world, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is still at work among the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked, carrying out the desires and the passions of the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath. That's, if you're a follower of Jesus, who you used to be. But God, still in Ephesians chapter 2, being rich in mercy, even when we had rebelled against him, he made us alive together with Christ. And see, he, he changed the course of our life. Here's a, uh, another picture from Tackle the Tar. And kind of in the background, you see those, I don't know how well it, you can see it from where you are, but those yellow boundary markers, right? You see the boundary marker? You see some people on the far side, they're not running the race, but then on, and all through tackle the tar, I knew where I was supposed to go. I just kept following the boundary marker, right? If I ran off the boundary marker, I'd get into poison ivy or get off, you know, some, some, something like that. I just keep running on the boundary marker. Now, what, what is, in fact, we're here in Matthew 6, Look over here in verse, uh, chapter 7, Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What's Jesus saying? There's a narrow way that leads to life. We might understand it well by thinking of it this way. The world's got boundary markers. It says this is what leads to life. And, and basically, we live in a generation that says, deny yourself nothing 
and you'll live, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the world we live in. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We can at least agree on this much, right? You can't do both of those things at the same time. It's not the same course. And Jesus is saying, the wide way leads to destruction, and many are they who find it. Following the path that you invent for yourself, remember Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Following the path that you invent, I'm, I'm going I'm to follow my own instincts. That will leave you addicted, depressed, exhausted, lonely, or bored, or all of them. You are not the author of life. Jesus is. But we live in this generation that exalts self above all else. And friends, when you put self in the place of God, you're on the wide path that leads to destruction. And following Jesus is a different course altogether. So how do you know? How do you know if you're on the right path? Are you loving, enjoying, and serving Jesus more and more? Has he transformed your life? So, so, that the, so your life is no longer making much of you, but you're enjoying God in making much of, of him. Now, here's, the, here's kind of the, the gist. I'm not telling you anything you've never heard before, am I? I said one thing you've never heard. But the heart is deceitful. And here's part of the deception. I've heard it. I know it. And therefore, I'm doing it. But that's not necessarily so. It's not necessarily so. There, there's a gate and a way that leads to life. I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again. I'm going to choose this door right here. All right? Y'all just hang with me. I'm going to walk out. I'll be back, though. All right, so I've entered by the door, and now I'm walking along a way. Does that make sense? This is so important. Because the enemy will deceive you about what door you've actually walked through. He will. You don't believe me. Verse 21, chapter 7, this is what Jesus is talking about. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom or will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So here's my encouragement to you. You know you're on, you've entered by the right door if you're walking along the right way. Does that make sense? So here's an example. This is the part of the world we live in, and I hear this all the time. So I desire in humility to be a faithful teacher of God's word for you. If you've gone years, years without obeying Jesus, years without coming to him in his word, years of prayerlessness, years of what Jesus will say, fruitlessness, then you have to say, did I walk through the door if my way has never been led by the Holy Spirit. There, friends, is a day, a moment of conversion. I shared with you mine when I was 11 years old at Vacation Bible School. But sometimes people emphasize it, it, the heart is deceitful above all things. And we need to be a people who are more guided by what Scripture says than what my opinion is. So, for example, 
Hey, so-and-so, when they were nine years old, walked down the aisle, filled out a card, was baptized on their way to heaven. You need to go by what they did when they were 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. I'm not saying in a harsh, judgmental way. Examine the fruit. Man, if you're holding up a dead branch and saying this is an apple tree, have you ever tasted apples from it? If it's got life in it, it will bear fruit. That's what Jesus is saying. And he doesn't say it happens every now and then. You said, this is about overcoming anxiety. You're making me anxious. I want you to know the Lord. Not everyone who says to me, verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and look what we did in your name. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what boundary marker is keeping you going in the direction that you're going? For a lot of people, it's feelings. I just want to be happy. Is it faithfulness? Second exhortation. We keep to the course of following Jesus, not the course of following the world. Third exhortation is we we team up with others heading in the same direction. We team up with others who are heading in the same direction. What I noticed pretty quickly when the race began is some runners who are a lot faster than others. This this demonstrates my self-righteousness as we were getting to the starting line. I started kind of looking around. And I said, who can I keep up with? I don't think anybody was asking that of me. Looked at me and said, well, he's not, that's not going to be a good idea. And then the race begins, and man, some people fly out of there. On our, on our uh, race day, we'll put this picture on the screen. You see two areas. The first area is the runners, right? And you see in the background the bleachers? Do you see those? Participators spectators. I chose a picture where you couldn't actually see the spectators, but they put up a tent, shaded, comfortable, as much as a metal bleacher can be. But you want to team up with others who are heading in the same direction. When I was running the race, the people I I was just most encouraged by were those who could have gone a lot faster, but they slowed their pace to come alongside a friend or a spouse or a child. Abel didn't do that with me, but he just was gone. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But they just kept, hey, man, we can do this. We can keep going. Don't quit. Just a little while longer. I'll help you over, right? That's who you want to listen to. Who do you not want to listen to in life? The people who are not in the race at all. People, people got all kinds of opinions on the bleachers, right? Can we agree on this? All sorts of people got opinions on the bleachers. You ought to be doing this. Church ought to be about that. We, we, we need to do this. We need to, so, so here's a way that I've learned to kind of deal with discerning between helpful uh, correction, because you do need correction in life, and unhelpful criticism. What comes from the Holy Spirit and what comes from a different spirit, Right? So godly people, I don't know how to say it other than this, when they tell you they're going to be sweating and muddy because they're in the race too. Ungodly people 
who kind of just go through life as critics sitting in the bleachers, spotless, not tired, but full of advice, right? So, this isn't a, I don't care what anybody says. No, we need accountability and correction from others. But I will tell you, don't spend a single second worried about the criticism that comes from people not in the race. Not a second. So, you're, you're going to be criticized. A question that you can ask, I, I've learned over years to ask it this way. When I receive criticism, now, also would tell you, a godly person will always give you correction in person. It's one of the first lessons I had to learn, right? And you do too. Ungodly people will often criticize anonymously. Where's this coming from? I don't know. How do we handle it? I don't know. So when criticized, ask the simple question. Who is the last disciple this person made that is thriving in the Lord? It's the last disciple this person made who's thriving in the Lord. And if that's not evident, if that fruit's not being shown, then have a spirit of discernment and say, is this really coming from the Lord? Hey, y'all, we, we, live in a, we live in a generation that the complaints are constant. There is a difference between grumbling and godly correction. Amen? The difference, and you're going to have to learn if you're going to be on the, in other words, think about it this way, I know the picture's gone, but, but if you're running the race in order to listen to the complaints or counsel or advice of those who are spectating, what will you have to do? You have to stop. And if you're not careful, you'll start sitting with them. And then if you're not careful, you'll start doing the same thing, Right? You do want to listen to the person who's huffing and puffing and not like the big bad wolf that sounded, but climbing and sweaty and muddy. Don't listen to the person just hanging out in the shade. Basing this on the scripture here in Matthew, let's listen to it. When you pray, when you pray, if you forgive, when you fast, do not lay up for yourselves treasures. Well, all of those pronouns are plural. All plural. In other words, this is marking out the course that we're to be in together. I've been so helped recently in our Sunday school class, we're studying the book of Philippians. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Got your Bible there? Philippians chapter 1. I love what Paul says here. Paul's in prison. He's under house arrest. He's literally chained to... Uh, uh, Roman guards, and he's writing the letter to the Philippians. He says in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, so that it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, be with Christ. That's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and and continue with you all so that your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So clearly Paul, he's on trial. He doesn't know if uh, the sentence of death is going to come down, if he's going to live or is he going to die. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I am going to remain, I'm going to continue to work for your progress. Whose progress in Jesus are you invested in? Whose progress, let's talk about a starting line, instead of needing the approval of other people, you now leverage your life for other people to find their approval in Christ. Your progress and joy in the faith. I also want to point out that those two things go together. You want to, make, you want to have more joy in life? Make some more progress by God's grace in knowing Him. They go together. Fourth exhortation is, is we refresh along the way. We refresh along the way. Quickly show you this picture. It's a group of volunteers. They're headed out, and they're going to be stationed all along the, uh, the route. And they're going to be sitting at tables and, for the most part, filling up the water. You know, you come by, and, hey, here's, you, here's some water. You can keep going. You can do it. So, so that as you're running the race, you refresh along the way. Water stations along the way. And I hope, spiritually speaking, that that's what this morning service is, a water station. Do, do you know who doesn't need to be refreshed? Those who've not exerted themselves, right? We don't come here to be entertained. We come here because we need a word from the Lord. And when you're engaged in real spiritual exertion, you learn the importance of prayer very fast. Look how much Jesus talks about it. From Matthew 6, verse 5, all the way to verse 15, including the Lord's Prayer, he teaches you what not to do when you pray, and he teaches you what, how to really pray. There's no such thing as a follower of Jesus who's not hungering for prayer. So if God's transformed your life, he gives you a new appetite for holiness, to have a mind desiring to know his word and his ways. Sometimes I think we think far too little of salvation. What God's really done in transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. I'm, one of the ways that I know Jenna Dees is alive, she's hungry all the time. Julie and I were talking this week that we've made progress to go from two hours to three hours between feedings. <sighs> three whole hours. How long can you go before you desire to pray for you in the word it's another way of asking know the door you came through if your way is full of seeking the lord in prayer and I've, I've been a part of the american church since i was born again at age 11 and i have noticed friends i have noticed the most sparsely attended services are the prayer meetings they are and have been my whole life And I think part of the drought that's going on in our culture right now is that God is going to call his people back out of self-sufficiency and unto prayerfulness. That's part of what's going on in the book of Jeremiah. I've talked to several of you reading Jeremiah. Jeremiah preaches his heart out for 40 years and gets very tepid response. And then you flip over to Ezra and Nehemiah. And you go read Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra opens the law and the people start to weep. What changed from that generation to the next. Captivity, that's what changed. 
And I don't know if captivity is necessary to make that change. I think Jesus is offering us here. Do you have a desire to hallow his name? That's how the Lord's Prayer starts, right? Hallow. Your deepest need is not bread, clothing, food. Your deepest need is to hallow the name of God. We need to be refreshed if we're exerting for the Lord. He built in a day a week. At minimum, you need a day a week. You remember Jeremiah um, to be refreshed. You remember Jeremiah 17.4. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. He will inhabit parched places. In other words, you'll go up to the water table and say, I need a sip. And it's dry as a bone. That's how you know you're on the wrong, <laughs> wrong course, right? We'll do the last three quickly. Number five, we set aside unnecessary weights. Set aside unnecessary weights. Uh, Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. One of the primary uh, causes of anxiety in my life is treasures that I have on the earth. I'm anxious about it. What's going to happen to it? Well, Jesus said... One remedy for anxiety is don't store up those treasures to begin with, right? You don't store up for your treasure. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves do break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Um, one of the obstacles we had on the uh, tackle the tar was, was this tower. And I'd ridden by it several times as they were setting things up. And I said, that doesn't look too, that doesn't look too tough. And it really didn't until I was actually at the foot of the tower. And all of a sudden, I said, man, that's, that's taller than I thought. And I did think to myself, talking about practicing your righteousness in front of other people, can I distract everybody and just slide by it? And then I, and then I just kept saying, you can do it, you can do it. So I got up to the top, and I was fine until you actually have to transition from one side to the other. And then all of a sudden, I, felt, I, don't, even, I don't even feel my legs anymore. How do I, how do I get them over and, and down? And then somebody else started climbing up, and the whole thing was wobbling, and uh, you know, just not, not a great moment. But can you imagine how much more difficult that would have been if I had a suitcase in each hand? So I'm going to come up, climb to the top, and then there are some things, if you're going to really be running the race with the Lord, that you do have to let go, friends. You do. So let me give you a a question that you can ask increasingly to think about what needs to be let go in life. Will this, will this help me become more like Jesus? I mean, when you talk about how you're going to spend your time and how you're going to spend your money, how you're going to spend your life, will this help me become more like Jesus? The answer is no. Guess what you can do? You can set it aside. You set it aside. Or is this something the Holy Spirit would lead me to do, think, say, buy, participate in, invest my time, my heart in? And if the answer is no, ask God to bring you to the point where you would willingly, joyfully set it aside. There are things we cannot accomplish in and for and through the Lord without setting aside some things that are not in and of and through the Lord. Number six, we look to the example of those who have gone before us. We look to the example of those who have gone before us. The, the race times were staggered, so our time, we started, I think it was at 9.40 a.m., and so some had started 
9 and 9.10 and 9.20. The really fast people, they started at 8 and they were already done. I mean, when we were showing up for the race, there were people who were, I'm already finished. And then as I was running the race, there were a couple of times where the course is, you, you, you came alongside, and I didn't know it because I'm following, staying with the boundaries, that I could see people who were on the course but a mile ahead of me. And sometimes you would run, and we're going this direction, and they're going that direction. And it just always encouraged me. They're, they're doing it, right? They're, they're still on. They're still upright. They're still running. We look to the example of those who have gone before us. I think I shared sometime last year that just kept hearing a word used that we live in unprecedented times. And I, and I understand what's being said there. What, what we really mean by that is we're living in unprecedented times for us. But they're not unprecedented times. No, we're not the first ones who've had our f- faith stretched, who faced all reasons that we could be anxious. Man, many have gone before us. Think of all the faithful followers of Jesus who have gone before us. Or think about how Jesus has gone before us. Last Wednesday, I was at the hospital. I was visiting Lolita. As often happens, I I went to the room to encourage her, right? my plan. I'm going to go in there and encourage her. And here's a lady loves Jesus over and over. You know what she said? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I, I can think about looking around this sanctuary because uh, one of the things I love about my church is y'all pretty much sit the same place every week. So I can, uh, I remember faces who've gone before us, finished the race, Why? Because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus carried them to the finish line. Think of all that your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents have faced. Think of Abraham and Moses. Think of Ruth and Esther. Think of Naomi. Think of David and Paul. Mary and Joseph. Gone before us. We look to the example of those who have gone before us. And then seventh and finally, we, we cultivate, sharp, and practice the disciplines that sustain progress in becoming more like Jesus. I know that was a mouthful, but just hang with me. Two more minutes. Cultivate, sharpen, and practice. Let me give you, let me give you three that Jesus mentions, habits to cultivate. Because when I showed up for the, for the, for the 5K, the weeks leading up to it, I'd been doing some running. In no way, shape, or form, I was going to say I was in good shape, but I'll tell you this, two years ago, prior to me trying to run regularly, I would have had no, no chance in getting to the first mile before I just quit, right? So there's some things that you cultivate, sharpen, and practice. And Jesus tells us what they are. Verse 2, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Say, still living for the feedback of others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So one, are you generous? Are you generous? Generosity rescues you from storing up treasures on earth, right? A generous person. Not if you give, when you give. 
And man, it's, so, it's such a blessing to those you give to when you don't make a big show about your giving to them. That allows them to receive it without may, being made to feel like, um, yeah, well, as Paul says, what do we have that we did not receive? Right? What do you got that God didn't bless you with? So, so that you be generous. And then when you pray, verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up, heap up empty phrases. comes to prayer, put two more pictures on the screen. I spent a lot of time looking at this, so familiar. All right, that's picture number one. And now picture number two. All right? That's Navy SEALs training, right? I'm not trying to be dramatic. But it really matters which of those pictures represents what you think about prayer. Which one do you think is prayer really is? That you stand up to the menu and say, God, what I'd really like today is the number one. What I really want today is just ease and comfort. Something to satisfy a temporary appetite. Or is prayer the fight of your life? And I'm being serious now. I'm not trying to be dramatic. Prayer is the means by which you say, what course am I really following? What am I really longing for? What do I really have an appetite for? What, are, what is my heart? Who am I? What is my desire? Because God coming around the bend, I don't know what's coming. Cancer might be coming. Coronavirus might be coming. Economic catastrophe might be coming. What's coming? What is my heart set on? Which picture is more closely represents the real spirit-led Christ-honoring prayer? Prayerlessness, friends, is, a, is the sign of self-sufficiency, and self-sufficiency inevitably leads to anxiety. So most people that I know want to be a part of a praying church more than they want to pray. They just want to know somebody's praying, right? Somebody's a praying church. But are you praying? So, so if we go through these seven exhortations, the fear of man leads to anxiety, Following the course of this world leads to anxiety. Going through life without real trustworthy friends heading in the same direction leads to anxiety. Not getting regularly refreshed along the way leads to anxiety. Carrying around things not fit for following Jesus leads to anxiety. Ignoring the examples of those who have gone before us and kind of thinking we're the first ones to deal with this leads to anxiety. And then not cultivating, understanding, and using the disciplines of prayer. And I said there were three. I didn't mention uh, the really four. Verse 14, if you forgive others, some of us will be freed up from anxiety if we forgive some people for some things that have gone on. And then 16, when you fast. Man, fasting is the forgotten weapon of spiritual warfare. Kind of roll our, idea, our eyes at even the notion of fasting. But what, what is fasting? Fasting is laying aside food for the most part, but anything that, that gets more of your attention than God. Could be the television, could be the phone, could be the social media. We all talked about all that last week. And I set it aside until... In order to do what seems increasingly to be the hardest thing for a human being in America in 2022 to do, I sit in quiet and solitude and I seek the Lord. Therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. This is the means that we can discover that life is more than 
And friends, life is more than worrying about what everybody thinks about you. Amen? Life is, life is more than just following the course of the world. When I said Jesus is not anxious, there, there was a moment in his life, do you remember? When he said, My soul, my soul, my soul. Remember he's with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? To be any way, this cup passed from me. This cup passed from me. And he asks his friends, right? Can you watch and pray? Pray with me. And they go back to sleep, right? Um, the, the only one who's ever run this race spotlessly is Jesus. If we could have pulled it off, if we could have gotten over every obstacle, hey, it doesn't matter what you've achieved in life, there is a mountain you couldn't climb. It was your sin debt. It was your sin debt before a holy God. You say, and, and the problem is that legalists turn that into a, something that's surmountable, and it's not. Hey, if you just get your act together, if you just learn enough Bible verses, if you just come to church every Sunday, so on and so forth. No, 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 you can't. And Jesus is facing it. He's going to take that sin debt on himself and that's the one moment in the garden where he's before the Father. So intense, he's sweating blood. That's what the Bible records. And friends, he took that for you. He took that instead of you. And the argument of Scripture is, if you can trust him with the bigger, you can trust him with the smaller. Do you know what I mean? If you can trust that he has handled that, when it comes to your food, when it comes to your clothing, when it comes to your life. Oftentimes, I'm most anxious about trying to hold on to something that he said you'd be better off if you let it go to begin with and grab a hold of me. So I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray together. I, I ask for grace that it's not a pep talk from Jesus. And the message is definitely not, hey, just stop being anxious. Any more than the Bible says, just stop being angry. Stop lusting. No, no. He said he can be trusted. I always want to end every message that we have here by pointing you to Jesus, specifically at the cross and his death, his burial, and his glorious resurrection. And it's in light of that that I want to say, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. You pray with me, and then the invitation's open. If you've got a burden, a concern, you want to pray with someone about, it'd be my joy. I'll stand right here as we sing together. Maybe you want to come to the front and just pray to the Lord. Hey, that invitation's wide open. Of course you can stay right where you are. If any of these seven exhortations this morning grabbed your attention, my encouragement to you is during the invitation time, really listen to the, to the Lord through his word. And that's how transformation happens. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he is the sure and steady anchor. It's because of Jesus, our chains are gone. And so God, I pray that You'd be at work in the inner person, in our heart. On our own, our heart is so deceitful. But when the Holy Spirit resides, He can be trusted. So help us to 
not go through life being hearers of the word and so deceive ourselves, but, but doers, we pray in Jesus' name.